0: He
1: knows, he doesn't before.
0: Hey, he's been gone for a whole week. But you I'm, don't have to tell him what to do. I, I don't even know what this is. Sometimes it's like I, riding a bike, he forgets. I'm, I'm just here for the coffee. <laughs> you you know Brad Pitt has face blindness. Like stop he, that. He can't recognize faces. I wish I didn't recognize them. what you're trying to I do. I think right that's now. what's going on with Toby. Hey y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Cross Politic on the Fight Laugh Feast Network. Pastor Toby's back in the studio. Chuck the Knox and I'm the water Thank boy. You. Where it's am good I? to be with what you. Is this place? Don't you
1: even play. <laughs>
2: Folks, our upcoming Fight Laugh Feast conference is just 4 months away. Is that right? Is that Whoa. true? Yeah, I, know. Uh, I know. It's going to be in Knoxville, Tennessee, October 6th through the 8th. Don't miss Beer and Psalms the first night, Thursday night. Mm-hmm. Our amazing lineup of speakers including George Gilder, yes, Jared Longshore, Pastor Doug Wilson, Dr. Ben Merkel. I, hey, that's my name. I'm going to be there too. I guess I'm giving a talk. <laughs> Pastor <laughs> and,
0: Toby Mee, <laughs>
2: and we can't say yet. Ugh. There's another one. I was going to ask yeah. you. About There's more, yeah. more talks yeah. coming up. And yeah. Knox is going to do something special. But
1: are my people coming? Because with your the people. thing that I'm supposed to do? Your people. Are they going to be
2: there? Yeah. So We're I can talk do about okay. call your people, I'll call my people. Don't miss our awesome vendors, meeting new friends. Probably people that watch Cross Politics, listen to Cross Politic in your own city you've never met before. So come That's meet always them funny. at the conference. Also, we have piles of kids. Bring the kids. Yes. Uh, we have Jumpy Castles. Yeah. And accidental infant baptisms. <laughs> that's for our
1: but
0: Baptist I just, brothers.
2: I just read I just read these things. What, I'm I, not gonna I, be doing them. I didn't agree to that. Just for just so, for the record. But. Just for our Baptist brothers. That's all. <laughs> also, did you know you can save money by signing up for a club membership? Yeah. So um, if you all club members, get a hundred dollars off of
0: yeah, uh, the tickets. Right. Mm-hmm. So
2: go to flfnetwork.com or com. sign up, become a club member, register for the conference, get that discount. We can't wait to fellowship, sing psalms. And celebrate God's goodness in Knoxville. Remember, that the, it doesn't say in this, but it's the, the, the title this year is Lies, Propaganda, Storytelling, right. and, the and the Serrated Edge. edge. Knoxville, October 6th through the 8th. We are grateful to have with us on the line right now Pastor Al Baker. Al is <laughs> ordained in the Vanguard Presbytery. That's the PCA, I think. And has been whoa, come on, I can't read. Has been in the gospel ministry for over 38 years. 1974 wow. graduate of the University of Alabama.
0: Wow. He received Hook'em
2: horns. <laughs> oh, I mean, never mind. Never mind. <laughs> wrong school. He received That's his wild master wild. of divinity degree from Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, 1981. Wow. Just a year after I was born. My uncle, my wa- uncle went to RTS Jackson. <laughs> And he received a doctorate of divinity in evangelism world missions in August 2017 from Whitfield Theological Seminary in Lakeland, Florida. Pastor Al, thank you for joining us on Cross Politic. Great to be with you guys. I appreciate it. Great opportunity. So Al how come wokeism Ooh. and the LGBTQ XYZ front Plus. are better at evangelism than biblical Christians. <laughs>
3: Uh, that's a great question. I love the way you frame it. I really believe that Reformed Christians um, a long time ago gave up the office of evangelist, and uh, if, you, if you look at the various books of church order of the of various Presbyterian churches, they really don't have that office. Now, I will say this, the, the OPC does to some degree, but um, And then again, if you think about it, what happens most of the time is most of the men who are in the Presbyterian Reformed world as pastors love theology. They love to preach theology and so forth, which is good. They love the study. They love the academia of it it all. Uh, But most of the guys that are drawn to this are really not evangelists. And consequently, when they go into a church, the church tends to take on the persona, if you will, of the pastor himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if he's a teacher and you know a theologian, then he's going to attract people like that. And so the the church is kind of moves in that direction. And again, the pastor knows he ought to be doing evangelism, and a lot of times you feel guilty when they're not doing it. But I think that's the reason. And yeah. so, um, and I, and I think the church has been significantly. Negatively affected by that because we, because of all the various problems you just mentioned, are in a very uh, these various reformed denominations, and I think it's because, frankly, there must be a lot of people in our churches who really are not converted.
1: Mm-hmm. At Oof. the
3: end of the day, I think that's the answer. Yeah.
1: Do Do you know who Kennedy Smart
3: is? Oh, absolutely. Okay, he's so, a good friend of mine.
1: Oh, okay, so I went to church with Kennedy Smart. Um, In Georgia, uh, in Chestnut Mountain, Presbyterian uh, Church. yes, i preached there a few
3: times, yeah. Yeah,
1: Okay, so um, we might have crossed paths and I didn't didn't know it. But one of the things that I've noticed is that Kennedy Smart and that generation there had more of an evangelistic type of heart than it seems like the younger generation currently does right now. And he's one of the people who really convicted me. Because I saw him going out and witnessing to people. And no matter if it was a person on the corner, he was talking to him. He was engaged in some way. But I didn't see that in my generation. What's different between our two generations?
3: Yeah, I think, uh, I think well, first of all, I, I would say that Kennedy Smart, um, James Kennedy, Jim Baird, Frank Barker, the guys who started the PCA, I, I knew all of those guys. And I preached with those guys and for those guys all at some point or another. And they were godly, godly men, uh, but they were more broadly evangelical than they were reformed, I think. Mm. And so I think that the the evangelicalism was what was really driving them. And then what happened was when the PCA came into existence, um, there was there was some of the older guys really still had that that particular view. But as the denomination began to grow. There began to be more of an emphasis on a distinctly reformed Calvinistic ministry. Again, that's vital. There's no way that I'm diminishing that in any way, but that began to be the the driving force. And again, as I mentioned a moment ago, a lot of the guys uh, just really did not see the significance of evangelism because... Although they would say they did deep down inside, they really weren't practicing it. They weren't they weren't modeling it for other people mm. as Kennedy Smart did. Yeah. Kennedy, I've often said, you know, Kennedy, you know, he would knock on people's doors. And a lot of times it's hard to get in. I, I guarantee you, Kennedy could get into anybody's house. He wanted. <laughs> That's <to>. right. He's <laughs> the most winsome gracious man I've ever met it's an amazing man and he's still alive at last I heard he's about 93 and 94 so wow wow uh, amazing man uh, yeah. why why
2: should reformed Calvinistic uh ministers and those who are gifted with evangelism why should they be the ones that are actually far more actively involved rather than the the evangelical the, you know the more mainstream evangelicals why should reformed and Calvinistic uh, men be even more at the forefront of evangelism.
3: Well, because we believe in the doctrine of election. <laughs> I mean, if you're if you're an Arminian, you don't know you don't you don't know what's going to happen. You know, it's 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 you know the guy that you're talking to holds the ace card, right? I mean, you don't you don't know what he's going to do. But Calvinists understand that God has chosen his people. Mm-hmm, yeah. They're out there. It, it reminds me of Acts 18, where Paul is in Corinth. He's been, I had a rough time, right? He had a rough time in Philippi, he got beat up there, got yeah. beat up in Athens. Nobody, they were mainly mocking him. He comes to that wicked city of Corinth. And it, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, he said, I came to in weakness and in fear, and much trembling. I mean, think about that for a moment. The apostle Paul, the great apostle, was fearful mm-hmm. for a period of time. and It was a rough place. And what happened? The Lord came to him in the night and said, "Uh, Paul, do not fear any longer. Keep on preaching the gospel. No one here in this city will attack you to harm you, for I have what? Many people in this city. Yeah. And so Paul went out and he knew that people would be converted. Mm. So when, when I go out and I do door-to-door evangelism or what I am doing open-air preaching, the, the, the world game starts in Birmingham on Thursday. And we'll be out there every day and there's going to be hundreds, maybe 100, 200,000 people there. Wow. And we preach the gospel somebody in that crowd is going to believe. And mm. if we may not actually see them call in the name of the Lord, although we do see that from time to time, but there are, he has his people there. And the, as you well know, Jesus said, uh, my sheep hear my voice Amen. and they follow me and mm-hmm. come to me.
0: Right. You know, so, uh, um, pastor, Al, right. I think part of your book is kind of getting at the distinction between, you know, everyone in the church is called to have an answer in season or out of season. Right. But you're particularly trying to get at the church needs to get back to the uh, a, a view where they're um, ordaining evangelists, paying evangelists, you know, as as a office, not just right. as and, and that seems to me that that's kind of a lost office in the church, and also part of the reason why maybe why our evangelism maybe is so so impotent is because we aren't following kind of God's directive on actually having an office of evangelism in our church.
3: I think you're exactly right. And uh, Ryan Denton brought the chapter on the, uh, the the biblical rationale for the uh, office of evangelism. I thought he did a brilliant job on that. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I I think that what's happened is we have um, all these, these men in the ministry and uh, they're really not emphasizing evangelism and I, I put it this way. I say, look, guys, if you're a pastor, you know you should be doing evangelism, but that's not your gift. And besides that, you've got sermon preparation, you've got counseling, you've got these meetings, you've got hospital visits and all this sort of stuff to do. And it's it takes a lot of time if you're doing it correctly. Mm-hmm. I said, so what? wouldn't it be great if you would either find the money to hire a guy or at least give him an office and encourage him and say, look, the evangelistic ministry is your baby. Here it is. Go for it. We'll support you. We'll encourage you. We'll pray for you. We'll support you financially if we can. And let him go. And I always tell people, now, when you do that, you've got to be willing to have people come into your church who look a little bit different than you. Right. <laughs> might, you know what I mean? They might come in with drug problems. They might come in. You know, you might get some unclean, unwashed people in your church, and your church has got to be ready for that. Yeah. But as I always say, that's a beautiful thing. Yes. And so I think we need to get to to that. So I say, look. Find you an evangelist. Pray that God will bring one into your church and let him go. Let him do his thing.
2: Amen. We, so I, I got to follow. We, up. we do that kinda with kinda, missions. I was just going to yeah, throw. Up, like yeah. we, I mean, we don't. We 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 recognize that with all other mission work. Yeah. Yeah, just, but mission work is over there. But no, <laughs> we don't, don't got to bring those people in the church. <laughs> hey, I got to sit next <laughs> to them, Pastor, we, we got a mission in this city. <laughs> yeah. We got a mission in this city. Go ahead, Gabe.
0: Yeah. So you know we're cross politics. Jesus, Lord over politics. Our, our show is particularly geared towards politics, and it seems also related to this that there's a connection between uh, uh evangelism from the church and the state of politics in our culture
1: mm. uh
0: and and that right now politics is kind of uh driving the church is kind of um, yeah. running yeah. into the church versus evangelism running out into the streets uh right. you know uh, how do you view the relationship between evangelism and politics
3: yeah, I think you've got to go back to uh, the the founders of our country, and I think uh, it was John Adams, you know, the second president of the United States, who said that this uh, this experiment of the consent of the governed will never work yeah. unless you have a moral, religious people.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. It will not work, and all the all that the law can do is it can restrain evil, but it cannot make. You righteous, mm-hmm. right? The example I use a lot of times is, um, you know, back in in the early days of Birmingham, back in the '60s. Of course, we had this horrible um, um, segregation issue, and um, it's I mean, it's largely gone now. I mean, the church I work a lot with, um, primarily African American churches and so forth. But what I tell these folks is, I said that uh, the law could that when the Civil Rights Act came in. It mandated that you could not discriminate and not let people come into your store and that sort of thing. But it could never make a white man love a black man, a black man forgive a white man, right? It it doesn't do that. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. And it sounds trivial or trite to say that, but it's really true. And here's another thing. I don't think we preach the full gospel. Several years ago, we mentioned before we got on the air, uh, Greg Johnson and when I wrote that article that came out and kind of blew up the, the Revoice thing back yeah, in 2018, I got with him at our General Assembly and we talked. We had a good, co- good, cordial conversation. Yeah. But I said, Greg, the problem is this. I said, I think that I don't think we preach the full gospel. We preach a justification only gospel. Now, look, justification is vital, it's a glorious yeah. doctrine, but it's not the full gospel. The full gospel is regeneration justification, sanctification, yeah. Ezekiel 36, that kind of thing. And I said, I think that that we have people who love the idea that God forgives them, God mm. cleanses them. But if they still have a wicked, godless heart that loves sin and hates God, then they can be baptized, catechized, homeschooled, you know, hear 2,000 sermons before they get off to college. And unless God changes their heart
2: amen then
3: then nothing's going to happen and so that's what's got to happen we've got to get back to preaching the full gospel where people's hearts are transformed and when that happens then people's politics begin to change that's right that's 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 the problem with
2: gut and violence lgbt stuff the woke stuff yeah we need the gospel Mm, the reformed evangelist the man the myth
1: and the message al baker thank you so much for joining us on cross Politics. available at amazon i'm sure right
3: Yep, that's All right. All right,
1: there you go. Now you know where to go get Appreciate it. Appreciate you, brother. Keep up the good Appreciate work. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks more, so much. More Cross Politics right. coming up next. Hi, I'm Robert Borton, CEO of Classical Conversations, the
3: world's largest classical Christian homeschooling community. I'm launching a new podcast, Refining Rhetoric. If you like Cross Politics or just listen to hear what crazy stuff they're saying today,
1: you will enjoy refining rhetoric. You can find us on your favorite podcast
3: platform. I practice the 15 tools of learning by interviewing great guests, looking at current events, and talking about cryptocurrency. Home,
1: it's where you build your legacy. Where traditions are started, seeds are planted, meals are shared, and stories are told. We are Chris and Natalie Carpenter, owners of Story Real Estate, and our team of top agents helps people find homes in Moscow, Idaho, and around the country.
3: Have you thought about a move? Contact us to get connected with a top agent who shares your values and puts your family first. Or reach out to us about our Moscow Relocation Guide.
1: Wherever you're looking to go, we can help you find home. Call us at Story Real Estate or visit us at storyrealestate.com and start building your legacy.
0: I'm excited for this interview. Yeah. Yeah? She's on her like fourth of July vacation, so we can't even So you can't see her? She's she's undercover right now, so it's all audio, but <laughs> but it's gonna be good.
2: <laughs> hey, welcome back to Cross Politic on the Fight Laugh Feast Network. Not so long ago, the American dream was alive and well. Employees who worked hard were rewarded, and employers looked for people who could do the job, not for people who have the right political views. RedBalloon.Work is a job site designed to get us back to what made American businesses successful. Free speech, hard work, and having fun. If you're a free speech employer who wants to hire employees who focus on their work and not identity politics then post a job on Red Balloon. If you're an employee who's being censored at work or is being forced to comply with the current zeitgeist, come on, post your resume on redballoon.work and look for a new job today. Redballoon.work, the job site where free speech is still alive. So www.redballoon.work. So hey, we're grateful to have with us right now on the show, at least by voice, Amity Schlaes, She's the author of four New York Times bestsellers. She is also currently the chair of the board of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation.
0: Silent Cal.
2: Many readers know Ms. Schlese from the Wall Street Journal, where she served on the editorial board, writing on foreign policy, taxation, and other topics. She's also written for Financial Times, Bloomberg, and currently appears in Forbes and the National Review. Ms. Schlese, married to fellow journalist editor Seth Lipsky, and they have four children together. Mm, mm. Ms. Schlese, thank you for joining us on Cross Politic.
4: Glad to be here. Happy 4th. I mean, not to
2: correct you, but wouldn't it be Mrs.? Mrs. Yeah, I just no. Read.
4: I go by I go by Miss because oh. Mrs. It's a Z sound with an S sound and it's kind of weird. Oh. <laughs> now,
2: see, you told me you didn't she correct don't like people. The word. I know. Look at her correcting <laughs> us. <laughs> she just told you. I guess I. I so so
0: Miss Amity, why is
4: Silent Wait,
0: Why is uh, Silent Cal the the greatest president in the United States?
4: No, he is the greatest for sure. Oh, wow. Uh, Convince us. Because he he cut the budget in peacetime. He was in office 67 months, and when he left office, the budget was smaller than when he came in. That's very rare in a president in peacetime, and uh, that's not like real versus nominal or relative to GDP or per capita. The budget was actually lower than when he came in. There are no qualifications hard to do and uh, that was because he knew the american people carry mm. the cost of extra spending he said "Overtaxation is legalized larceny he also yeah. said men do not make laws they do but discover them he had a respect for the spiritual wow. and he understood that government shouldn't impinge
0: but wasn't him cutting the budget like that i mean didn't he create the great depression
4: no, he did not.
0: <laughs> it was his fault, obviously.
4: <laughs> you want a long answer? Or, oh, no, I, I want Silent the long, answer. <laughs> long the answer. Long answer. Oh, God, the long answer. Okay, the long I wrote a book about the Great Depression, and Silent Cal is not the villain. That's called Forgotten Man. Many of the listeners may know that. But the bottom line is Herbert Hoover, who succeeded Coolidge, uh, had different policies than Coolidge. Coolidge cut taxes. Hoover raised them. Coolidge did not berate business. He said the chief business of the American people is business. Hoover berated business. And Hoover um, followed a policy that relates to our topic today, which is he said, pay workers more, dear employer, even though you're in a downturn and your profits are down, because then they'll spend money and that will stimulate the economy. And our economy will recover fast. Mm -hmm. That's not what had happened. We don't remember it. But prior to Hoover, in American history, when there was a downturn, employers had two choices, just as now. One is to lay people off. And the other is to cut wages. As an employee, if you like your job, you'll take the wage cut, right? Mm -hmm. Because you'll hope the employer likes you. You'll stick with them. And in a year or two or three or five months, maybe you'll go back to your old wage or above. Right. The new philosophy is sort of proto-Keynesian under Hoover, and yep. it was it was continued under Roosevelt. Um, and that was high wages even in a downturn, and that is a recipe for higher unemployment. There are other factors in the Great Depression which we've all written about, such as monetary. But the depression is not too hard for the common man to understand. Government played God where it shouldn't have. Mm.
0: Yeah. So everyone thinks that unions are a positive, overall positive good. Uh, Why are they, um, uh, I guess, uh, worse than than everyone thinks they are? Why are they not a positive good?
4: I kind of like the way you hesitate over that. I I think (laughs) a lot of us think unions are a lesser evil, the way the minimum wage might be a lesser evil. And also they... They bring solidarity. They're really good for actuarial situations. Sometimes they, you know, um, none of us hates unions. What you're referring to um, is in we're going to jump to the 60s, right? um mm-hmm. is in the 60s the subject of my book great society i was surprised how much damage unions did to the economy what do i mean the united auto workers teamed up with the automakers and these are the automakers are every bit as guilty as the union people henry ford too this is your problem too mm, wow. um ford v ferrari you've seen it yeah. bureaucracy instead of talent mm-hmm. um so and they made American cars too expensive. So why were Detroit and Flint such tragedies? Because we priced ourselves right out of the market. It's not racism. It's not conflict. The, the jobs went away there. The cities fell apart. So um, that became very clear to me when I looked at the 60s that the, the automakers just gave in and they, they drank the Kool-Aid. They agreed. And Toyota came in and other automakers came in. And by the way, the cars from Asia were better Yeah. Uh Yeah. because they were um, made uh, actually with, I mean, if you look at Toyota, the worker I more say on the assembly line, actually our assembly line was more Stalinist than theirs, which is a shocking thing to me. I'm from the Midwest, right? I grew up loving automakers and the UAW, but when I went back and looked, what happened was you know, unionization creates tension in the workplace. And our assembly line was a very rigid place. If you didn't like the way something was happening, you couldn't just stop the assembly line and say, boss, I think there's some some glue in the works. Whereas at Toyota, you could. And this is well documented by people in business school, but it's not known to the rest of us. And therefore, the the foreign cars were a, a better deal. And we, we murdered our cities. We murdered we created the Rust Belt through this collusion of automakers, heavy industry, and unions. On the other hand, I didn't know this till I researched my book, Great right Society. By the way, so mm-hmm. it, it was sort of news to me.
0: Now, Miss um, it's it's funny you have a problem with misses because S and a Z when Schles is a S and not a Z. But anyway, it's too oh. much Z <laughs> S. Yeah, it's a hard name. It's my, but
4: it's my dad's name, and I didn't want to be. Um, disrespectful to
0: what he gave me. Amen. 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 So, uh as I understood, we've we've done some research on our show about unions and and that there uh, some of the unions were founded over racist ideals to keep the black man from getting into the workplace. Is is that is that true?
4: There's always that component in unions. I mean, you know, but not in every union all the time. What I studied, what I found and what interested me was that, I mean, I think should interest your listener, too, is the United Auto Workers was a radical union. And um, they were um, the leader, Walter Ruther, whose name I grew up with. I'm that old. Every night on TV, it was Walter Ruther said this. UAW Mm -hmm. said that really misjudged um, civil rights. For example, um, he encouraged Martin Luther King in, in King's Northern Crusade relating to housing. As far as I'm concerned, that Northern Crusade was off message for King. What King needed to do was, was particularly fight in the South where African-Americans couldn't vote. King went off on this sort of redistrib- redistributionist more um, progressive economic policy that didn't really suit him and what shocked me when I was doing the research, I didn't understand was that he was very much encouraged by Walter Ruther by the UAW and uh, so, so I think that was one misstep. Ruther when I was growing up we heard about the poor Huron statement which was a statement, the manifesto of the youth student movement in America in the early 60s and how independent that youth was and that led to you know, the generation gap and student rebellion and Woodstock and free thinking and a lot of things. It, it, Port Huron is in Michigan. What I didn't realize until I researched this book is that the UAW paid for the meeting at Port Huron mm-hmm. because they want to develop a youth wing. Okay, that's fine. There's It wasn't illegal, but it's good to know that the American student movement part of which later became students for a democratic society and some of them terrorists and weathermen <laughs> were um funded at least at their inception by by the uaw poor uaw they didn't realize what they had wrought i'm sure walter reuther who was essentially a square man did not want to be funding people who would later become terrorists but that's what happened wow. and that, that i mean i didn't realize any of this so so i'm just conveying what what I was surprised to find when I researched um, the power of unions in the 60s. And it, it, it does um, have to do, you asked about the Great Depression. In the 1930s, if you go look at the work of some serious economists, such as Lee Ohanian of UCLA or Harold Cole of Penn, what you'll see is that the labor price in the 1930s was too high. Oh, gee, that's awfully perverse in a time when you have the Great Depression, labor costs a lot. And what we know about the Depression, the worst thing about it was the unemployment, that we had unemployment of over 10% for 10 years. Mm. That's what we can't imagine. That's why the Depression was great. And I didn't realize that how, to what extent that was the wrong philosophy of people going all the way from Herbert Hoover over the wrong philosophy what we would call keynesian spending you know encouraging higher wage, wages that employers can afford and also a very strong union law called the Wagner act the Wagner act was the yeah. big unionization law that created the closed shop it, we don't know about it because guess what? It was like a tiger that got neutered. Uh, mm. The neutering was the Taft-Hartley Act, which came after World War II because America realized we couldn't have a closed shop in every state. No. Um, and the Taft-Hartley Act was the law that gave us the right to work. That is the option of a state yep. to re- to remove from the most strict unionization to, in its jurisdiction. And we've had a kind of natural experiment running since then. What states grow more and have more employees? It's in the back of my Great Society book, states with less unions or less powerful unionization law, to be precise. So I'm not the enemy of unions, but I think what the record, I know what the record suggests, both from the 30s and the 60s on, is you've got to take a close look at what they do to employers and what they do to the whole culture. Um, particularly um, uh, pernicious is union spending on politics. Uh, sometimes you'll get results you, you that weren't even intended by the unions. Mm. I mean, okay. there are plenty of union people, including George Meany, Ruther's partner, who probably didn't expect that he would have funded the beginning of what became a very troubling movement.
1: Okay, I got to stop you right there. Do you have time? Do you have like another 10, 15 minutes for us, 10 12 minutes
4: 10.
1: Oh, 10 oh, 10 okay we'll do 10 all right you you got we gotta go we gotta go but if you're a fight laugh feast club member you get to enjoy another 10 minutes mm. uh i haven't even asked my questions just, yet yeah so. i, I kind of hogged like, that yeah if you're single get married if you're married have you some kids they're good questions if, if you have your kids <laughs> go baptize them until tomorrow love god with all your heart soul mind and strength love your neighbor as yourself go fight laugh and feast. This is cross-politic. Woo, I just went to school.
5: (laughs) Armored Republic exists to honor Christ the King by providing tools of liberty to free men. New York State just banned body armor. Armored Republic is suing the state of New York in federal court to resist their arrogant war against your God-given rights. Mass shootings are tragic acts of evil that are best resisted by armed citizens and brave watchmen ready to fight back. The main violent threat to human life is not individual criminals, it's tyranny. In the 20th century alone, governments killed 169 million of their own unarmed citizens. Unarmed citizens are the stuff of dreams to tyrants and criminals. The Second Amendment is an acknowledgement of your God-given right to own a rifle and body armor. The 14th Amendment acknowledges the duty of the federal government to stop tyrant states from stealing your God-given rights. Legislators of New York, you are oath breakers. You proudly steal the rights of your people and oppress them without a second thought. Your law is null and void. It's unconstitutional. It is an offense against God, and there is no king but Christ. This is Armored Republic.